All right, so we are in Mark's Gospel, continuing our series. Um, so if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 10, and we're going to read from verses 23 to 31. Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 31. So the Word of God reads, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we thank you for Mark's gospel. Uh, as we continue this, this second half of this encounter that Jesus has with the rich young man and examine Jesus fleshing out the difficulty of entering for anyone to enter into God's kingdom, uh, help us to understand the significance of what this means and how that should translate into our understanding of the gospel our, and our understanding of you. Lord, so often we, we, we gloss over uh, eternal life and we assume the ease of which we'll enter into eternal life. Uh, but Lord, whilst it might be easy in the sense that it's a free gift to be received by grace through faith, uh, help us to understand the gravity of Jesus' words in understanding the difficulty and even the impossibility for man to enter the kingdom of God by our own strength. And so, Lord, as always, I ask that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you recall last week, uh, we saw this encounter that Jesus had with the rich young ruler. I uh, explained that this, this man, uh, he had everything going on for him in life, or so we thought. He had money, he had respect, he had status amongst his peers. He was young. He was in the prime of his life, and he was really what, you know, by society standards, what people would call a good guy. You know, like when people talk about, you know, how do you, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? They'll, they'll say, I'm a good guy. This was that guy that people would say, he is that good guy. Of all the people we know that deserves to go to heaven, this is that good guy. And yet for this guy, this rich young ruler, for all of his goodness, he understood that there was something lacking. That despite his best efforts, 
Despite all of his goodness that he could conjure up through his good deeds, when it came to eternal life, he felt that there was something lacking. He didn't have an assurance of eternal life. And so he seeks out the right person. Who better to ask than Jesus? And he seeks out the right person to ask the right question. Arguably the most important question anyone can ask, what must I do to receive eternal life? And if you remember Jesus' response, it was an interesting one. Because if you re-examine that passage, when this man asks, how do I receive eternal life? How do I go into heaven? Jesus doesn't actually respond with the gospel the way we know it. He doesn't say to the man, well, you know what? You need to repent of your sins, you know, believe in me, follow me, submit your life to me, and then you're going to receive eternal life. That's not what Jesus says. Instead, he responds to this man's question with what? The law. Why was that? The reason he responded with the law is because the gospel, which begins with repentance, you can never really come to true repentance until you come to a place of true brokenness where you understand your depravity. You understand the true nature of your sinfulness. And so Jesus, in his response, began with the second half or the second portion of the Decalogue, the last six of ten commandments that have to do with our relationship with neighbors. Jesus quotes these six, and the man says, done. I've done that. The last six commandments, you know, don't murder, don't steal, all of that, I've done that. But here's the thing. The intention of the Ten Commandments and the intention of God's law was never for it to be used as a tick box. Not like, tick, I've done that, I'm good, I'm a shoe in for heaven. Because as Jesus moves to question the man from the remaining six to the first four commandments, which have everything to do with God, we realize that God's desire for obedience wasn't so much a matter of external doing, not a tick, I've done, did that, but it was a matter of the heart. Because that's what, really what the first four commandments are about. It's about to do with God, but really about the condition of the heart. That's why Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments with the greatest two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not about doing. It's not about going through the motions. It's about the condition of the heart. And so as Jesus begins with the first commandment, he reveals to the man that despite all your best efforts to be that good guy, you've failed at step one. Because he reveals to the man when he tells him to go sell everything, give his money to the poor and follow Jesus, he reveals to the man, your God is your money. And understanding this, this man walked away broken and sorrowful because he came to Jesus thinking, you know what, there's just something lacking in my life. Just one little, that little bit extra that I need to encourage me so that I can be assured of eternal life. That he needed that just that little answer to make him the complete believer. But Jesus revealed that the problem wasn't something that little, ex, that little extra thing that he was missing. But Jesus revealed that the problem was much more systemic. 
much more dire than just missing that little bit extra. And as the rich young ruler walked away, going into the distance, we come to today's passage, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now the passage says that when Jesus said this, it shocked his disciples. Verse 24 says that they were amazed. A more closer translation would be like they were, they were astonished. Horrified would probably be a closer uh, way to understand this. But then Jesus says, you know what? It's not just rich people that are going to have difficulty going to heaven. But in verses 24 and 25, Jesus says, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. So not just rich people, but humanity in general. How difficult is it going to be for anyone to enter the kingdom of God? How difficult is it to be accepted by God and to receive eternal life? You know what? Jesus doubles down on this. Because in verse 25, he doesn't just say it's difficult. But verse 25 says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not an engineer. Uh, we've got a few engineers in this congregation. But I'm smart enough to know that a camel does not fit through the eye of a needle. Probably not even through our front doors of FLM. Has anyone sewn before? When I was in primary, they, they, they got us to sew as like an arts and crafts activity. And one of the things I hated was trying to thread the needle. Like you'd spit on your fingers, you'd twirl it, and you'd have to get it exactly right. Jesus is saying that it's easier for a camel, one of the largest animals of that day, to go through one of the smallest openings of that day, the eye of a needle, than it is for a person to go to heaven. And so whilst verses 23 and 24 talk about how difficult it is, verse 25, this analogy of the camel and the needle, it's Jesus really saying it's not just difficult, it's impossible. Now, you might say, well, well hang on a sec. This analogy of the camel and the needle, Jesus is using this in reference to rich people, not everyone. He's saying it's impossible for rich people to go to heaven. I'm not rich, so it shouldn't apply to me. Right? But that kind of thinking, it's actually formed by a mode of thinking that's become popular in the 21st century. And that mode of thinking is that people today have, not, not always, but they have a tendency to assume if, that if someone is insanely rich, that it must be because they're somehow evil. That if this person became insanely rich, it was at the expense of making someone else insanely poor. Or that this person's wealth must be the result of ill-gotten gains. And today we have a tendency to kind of blame the rich for the poverty in the world, don't we? Like, how can you have 10 different houses and three yachts when people are starving in the world? That's the kind of mentality we have when it comes to rich people. That if he's rich, he must have exploited the poor. And maybe that is true, I don't know. But that's not the point that Jesus is trying to make when he talks about rich people. Because back then, culturally, during this time, the Jewish people had an understanding that if you had wealth, if you were one of God's people, if you were an Israelite and you had immense wealth, it wasn't a sign of your evil, but a sign of your goodness. That if you had wealth, 
It's because God bestowed blessing upon you. That as a Jew and a follower of God, your wealth isn't marked as a, as a negative quality about your character. But it was kind of like, you know, your health, your wealth and prosperity was a sign of how much God loves you. How much, you know, what a good guy you are for God to give all these things for you. That was generally the rule of thumb as to how people saw wealth. And on the flip side, if you were sick and if you lived in poverty, not always, but generally people had a tendency to think, oh, this guy must have done something pretty bad. Or this guy's family must have done something pretty bad for him to receive a curse like this. That God's withheld his blessing from this person and that's why he's begging on the streets or that's why he's racked with leprosy or some kind of disease. And for the rich, because back then, you know, salvation was by how good a person you were, how all the good deeds that you could do to earn your way into heaven. If you were rich and you had money to spare, what could you do? You could give to these beggars. Like you'd walk past going to the city of Jerusalem and someone's begging by the, you know, by the gate. As you go in, you'd pull out this coin, you'd go, ding, and then flip, and you'd give him a coin. And then people would see that and be like, wow. Even more blessing for this guy. Look at his charitable donation. God's blessed him and he hasn't forgotten about the, the needy and the poor. They thought that wealth was like this cycle of inviting more blessing and more acceptance from God by the good that you could do. And so for the rich young ruler, this guy was religious, knew the Ten Commandments, knew the law of God, was rich, probably gave to the poor, even at a young age, didn't forget the needy. And so people saw him, thought this, of all the people we know, this guy should be a shoo-in for heaven, right? But as we saw last week, we saw that that's not actually the case because Christ addressed with this guy that it's not so much what a person does that's important, but the condition of their heart. Jesus revealed to someone, or this man rather, what his God truly was, what the object of his love and faith truly was. And the reason this guy went away broken and sorrowful was that he understood, despite everything that he did, all the good deeds, that at step one, he failed because the most basic commandment to have no other gods, he'd made money and wealth and status his God. Regarding the law, Paul says in Galatians 2.6, we know that a person isn't justified, or it's another word to say declared righteous, by works of the law. It's not by what you do, but Paul says it's by faith in Jesus Christ. But if that's true, a great question we should ask, and I hope you guys have you know, thought about this, is if we can't be saved by obeying the law, what's the point of the law? Have you ever wondered that? If the law that God gave Moses, if it's impossible for us to obey this perfectly, to earn our way into heaven, why give this law to begin with? What's the point of it? If we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, what functional purpose does the law actually have? Now, one thing that the law does do is that it reveals the holy character of God 
and his standard of righteousness. Leviticus 20, 27-8 says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my commandments and my statutes and do them. I am the Lord God who sanctifies you. It says, be holy. Other passages say, be holy, for I am holy. What the law actually does is it doesn't just realize, uh, reveal God's standard of righteousness and his expectations of what the standard is meant to be. It reveals to us our sin in our inability to obey this command. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, by our good deeds, being a good person, Paul says no human being will be justified or declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So what the law does is it reveals God's ultimate standard, and it also reveals our inability to reach that standard. And so bearing all this in mind, we saw last week in his conversation with the rich young ruler that obedience to the law, it's not enough to save anyone. And for the rich man, attempting perfect obedience to the law, the only thing that's going to do is reveal to you your inability to attain perfect obedience to the law. And in today's passage, we see that in a culture that considered the wealthy to be the most blessed and accepted by God, Jesus says, not true. And that's not just for ordinary people, but for the wealthy. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. Just as it's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, it is impossible for anyone to be good enough to deserve or warrant eternal life. And so understandably, the disciples react in verse 26. It says that they were exceedingly astonished or horrified. And they ask him, then who can be saved? Like if the rich guy, who is meant to be the shoe-in for heaven of all of society, the rich guy, the most deserving, if he can't get into heaven, if it's impossible for him, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it's impossible. He says, you're right. You're right to ask that question. It's impossible by man, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is saying, don't look to yourself. Look outside of yourself. Now, Peter, being Peter, uh, I don't know if he missed the point of all of this, uh, but almost in reference to the conversation that he heard Jesus have with the rich young ruler, Peter says to verse 28, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus has just explained it's not about what you do, but it's more about who you trust. And Peter says, We've left everything and followed you, to which Jesus responds, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children's, or lands for my sake, and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. There's a lot in these two verses. Jesus spoke in a very unusual way. But there's a few things I want to unpackage here. Firstly, Jesus is correctly, or subtly rather, correcting Peter. 
that it's not just giving it up for his sake, but he adds, for the sake of the gospel. He says, for my sake and for the gospel, because as we saw last week, the gospel begins with heart transformation, whereby the Holy Spirit brings upon every believer a holy brokenness to recognize their inability to save themselves. So Jesus adds, not just for my sake, but for the gospel to show that it's not enough to just do things, but it has to stem from a recognition that you cannot save yourself. And so leaving behind all these things, like Peter didn't really leave behind everything because he had a fishing business, he had a home. He didn't sell it. He still had it. But Jesus is saying that leaving behind all these things, it's not about that. That's not where it begins. But it begins with a recognition that our only hope is in Christ. That we do well to ensure that nothing in our lives steals or extinguishes that hope. Father, family, friends, possessions. It's not that these aren't important, but Christ must be first always. So that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, this is more of a side note. If you look at the two lists of different family members that Jesus shares, you know, father, mother, brother, sister, children, there is one family member that's missing from this list. And for the sake of time, I won't, I won't get people to guess, but it's the spouse, your husband or wife. So Jesus says, you know, all these other things, your father, your friend, everything, all, all that stuff, if that usurps your priority and your hope in Christ, this is all secondary. Christ comes first. Even if you have to get rid of them. Because as Jesus established a fortnight ago in his conversation with the Pharisees, unlike all other human relationships, your spouse is the only person that the Bible says you become one flesh with. God's desire and intention was that the only thing to separate a husband and a wife is death. And I will say this unapologetically, but even as your pastor, as the lead pastor of FLM, my primary ministry is not you. You are, you are a ministry for me, but my primary ministry will always be my wife. I made a pledge to my wife when we got married that if we ever got to a point in our marriage where ministry became an unbearable burden, or if my wife was just suffering immensely because of ministry, that's, she's, she loves FLM, by the way, but if she, we, we were to ever get to a place where ministry, it's just, she comes up to me and says, Jay, I can't do this anymore. My priority is her first. Why? Because God's design is if I serve, we serve together. Finally, I know some of you uh, are familiar with the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Conceive, believe, receive, and achieve, I think is a famous mantra. Uh, as your pastor, uh, I want you to know that I openly condemn this type of gospel, which is no gospel at all. It is a heresy. It prostitutes the gospel 
And it's not found in Christian scripture anywhere. And the reason I share this with you is because today's passage has often been twisted out of its context. And I want to make it clear that this passage, this promise from Jesus towards the end of this passage, it's not a formula, it's not a promise that if you sacrifice, that you can expect to become wealthier, healthier, or more well-liked. To share a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, she was one of the greatest missionaries of the 20th century. She said, and I love this, she said, heaven is not here, it's there. If we were given all we wanted here, our hearts would settle for this world rather than the next. And so going back to this passage, when Jesus talks about receiving a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Like it's interesting that prosperity preachers will just talk about the houses and the lands but not really talk about anything else. But what Jesus is talking about when he promises this is the church. All of this, it's talking about the Christian church. Because if you read through the rest of Scripture, through the book of Acts in particular, and throughout the history of the church, you see this promise being fulfilled in the context of church. The early church, after Jesus ascends into heaven, they open up their homes to each other. So it's not just my house under my name, but now I can go into a brother's home and receive and enter it like as if it's my home. With regards to, you know, uh, brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers, like these new family that I receive, it's fulfilled in the fellowship of other believers where you look around in the church and the other people, they become your spiritual, eternal family. My home is your home. My love for my family becomes my love for you. Because you are my eternal family. And they did this because they understood that in Christ, this was a reality. Jesus promised that this is what the church era would bring about. But he also promises that persecution will come as well. Interesting thing for prosperity preachers to have to explain. This isn't a promise that if I sell my house and give to the poor, that God's going to give me a hundred houses. I wish that were true. Otherwise, I'll be the first person to sell my house. But we explained that what Jesus was trying to do, not just in that, that promise, but in the preceding verses, Jesus was actually trying to break a cultural mindset. What cultural mindset? The idea that your material wealth was somehow a gauge of God's love and acceptance of you. Jesus was trying to explain that this is actually a broken theology and it's at odds with what God actually promised. It's at odds with what God teaches and it's at odds with what actually plays out in reality, especially if you read through the book of Acts. Now, one other disclaimer I have to make. Jesus is not saying that wealth is bad. So if anyone in here is super rich, don't feel bad. Nothing wrong with having money. 
Nor am I saying that God blesses, or doesn't rather, bless people with wealth and health. If you are healthy and you are wealthy, praise God all the more. Throughout Scripture, God has blessed many people with wealth. Abraham was, like, for his time, was insanely wealthy. Job, one of the most upright men in all of human history, insanely wealthy. He was the Bill Gates of his day. David, Solomon, blessed with immense wealth. Barnabas in the New Testament, we know that he was a wealthy guy because he had property to spare that he could sell and give to the needy. And yet we see that despite wealth, they were faithful men of God. God does bless people with health and wealth, but what Jesus is making clear and what I want to make clear to you is that the focal primary point of the gospel and gospel blessing is not health, wealth, and prosperity. If that were the primary focal point, then you don't need the gospel, do you? Because you can become healthy, wealthy, and prosperous without Jesus. Look at the people in the world. I have got countless friends that are healthy, wealthy, and prosperous that don't know Christ. But the ultimate blessing of the gospel of Christ is Christ. And for those that are born again by the Spirit of God, who come to that place of holy brokenness, when they understand that Christ is their only hope, they understand the value of Christ, then they come to realize that of everything that the gospel promises, that Christ himself is the ultimate blessing. And because he is the ultimate blessing and the ultimate gift, you realize that you're willing to strip away everything in this life so as long as this gift and this hope isn't compromised. And so the passage then concludes with Jesus repeating that paradoxical statement that we saw a few weeks ago. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Almost like a bookend to what we saw a few weeks ago. Now, the last two passages that we studied in Mark's Gospel, they've been quite confrontational. Uh, they addressed the reality that no one is good. Maybe by the world standards. Good when we compare ourselves by ourselves. But Jesus reveals we're not meant to gauge our goodness by comparing ourselves by each other. But that the goodness we're to measure is by God's perfect standard. And against this standard, all people fall short. We saw last week that as we recognize our depravity, our brokenness, and the futility of trusting in our own goodness, that hope can't be found in us. Jesus explains how stupid it would be to try to find the answer in ourselves. But if there is no goodness that we can achieve, the logical conclusion is that if there is an answer, it has to be outside of us. And the gospel reveals that that answer is Christ. This perfect man, second person of the Trinity, who lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we were meant to die, fulfilled righteousness on our behalf, and credits it to us, credits to us his perfect life like as if we lived it ourselves 
is he takes upon himself the life that we lived so that he could be crushed under the full force of the Father's wrath on our behalf so that all that's left for us to do is to trust in him by faith that what he has done is enough. That's amazing. No other religion offers this. And personally, I think it's because their gods aren't big enough or powerful enough to offer this. The thing is, though, when we come to a realization of this, even if it's a genuine realization, and we come to a recognition of the value of Christ, uh, the reality is that we do still struggle because we are still of the flesh. A lot of things in the world and in our lives vie and fight for our attention. And Jesus, in verse 29, he isn't saying that having a home, the love of brothers and you know, different family members and having land is wrong, but it's hyperbole. He's trying to explain that nothing can take precedence over God. It's not that you can't have relationships, but the moment you allow anything in your life other than your spouse to take precedence and greater value than Christ, then you need to come to a humble place of reevaluation of your priorities. If we strive to keep Christ first, the promise is that we will get to experience true fellowship of the church, the love of family, the demonstration of generosity amongst believers. This is the blessing of the gospel in this life. And Christ promises so much more in the life to come. But we need to be careful to reevaluate when our priorities become blurred. And I want to just touch on one last thing to flesh this out a bit more as I conclude my sermon. Uh, we just saw the importance of having a Christ-first mentality when it comes to guarding our hearts because that paves the way to experiencing the blessing of the gospel. On the flip side, there is a danger in moving away from a Christ-first mentality because what that does when you allow something to usurp a Christ-first mentality is it starts to distort your understanding of value. And nowhere have I seen this play out more clearly than in the lives of my friends that I've seen destroyed by their addictions. I had one particular friend that was just immersed in his addiction to gambling. And I've been friends with him for a long time, and I watched the begin as a harmless, you know, $5 into the pokies. But over the months and years, I watched $5 become $10, $10 become $20, $20 become $50, then $100, then thousands, and then $10,000 at a time. His understanding of the value of money became distorted. Because he would start calling up friends saying that he has no money left to eat. And he'd ask them to lend him money. He had no problem borrowing money. 
even at the cost of relationships. He had no problems chucking 50 bucks into the pokies, knowing that if he lost it, he wouldn't have money to put in his stomach, or food rather, to put in his stomach. He began borrowing money, then lying about why he needed money to borrow more money. And then, I remember one day his parents called me because he was threatening, physically threatening his parents with a golf club, demanding that they turn over money to him. His addictions distorted not just his understanding of the value of money, but of the value of relationships. He destroyed so many relationships to be able to get more cash. And it was such a tragic thing to watch as a friend. And it's not just gambling that distorts our understanding of value. Anything, gaming, distorts our understanding of value. I know I see some of the first year uni students smiling. I was a gamer as well, I shared before. But I remember when internet cafes first opened up in Sydney. And for young people, I was a young person at, this, at that time, it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. I have to get money no matter what so that I can go and play StarCraft, Counter-Strike, Diablo. And we would spend hours, days, some of them would spend days, they wouldn't even go home. Mindless, endless hours. And it distorted our value of time, our value of money, and the value of our relationships with our parents. Because you and I both know that for young people that become addicted to gaming, the first relationship that becomes strained is the relationship with your parents. And the reason for that is because in these young people, they've allowed addiction to distort their understanding of value. Idolatry isn't one-dimensional. And I've said this previously, Satan is a master at manipulating our heartstrings because he knows where we are the weakest. Idols come in many shapes and forms. And what Jesus is saying isn't just to give us the promise of gospel blessing through the fellowship of the church, but is encouraging us to reevaluate our lives the moment we see idols in our lives bringing strain, distortion to our understanding of value and to guard our hearts to ensure that we always have a Christ-first mentality. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for the words of Christ as recorded in Mark's gospel. We thank you that Jesus, our Lord, wasn't afraid to teach against the cultural grain of the day, but to be honest with truth. That even if it meant turning societal values upside down, of the first being last and the last being first, destroying broken theology, that wealth somehow earns our way into heaven. Lord, help us 2,000 years later 
to examine these words to see how it should translate into our lives today. The idols might look different, but the consequences of idolatry still remain the same. And so, Lord, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would, in absolute humility, examine our hearts to prayerfully fight against and purge anything that might hinder a Christ-first mentality in our hearts. To understand the value of what is given us, given to us through the gospel, not just blessings, but the gift of Christ himself, fellowship with the King. And help us daily to remind ourselves of the eternal value that is to be found in this gift of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.